Amen. That's a true story. I had neither tape nor pocket knife with me as I was boarding that boat. <laughs> so I still haven't learned my lesson. I have today with me neither tape nor pocket knife once again. So. Oh, here we go. Here we go. I have one, a loner. I'll keep it up, keep it up here. <laughs> yes, indeed. It's, it's good to be in good fellowship. It's good to have a surrounding of godly friends and family. You know, once you spend enough time with, with people that you consider associates, they become friends. And I, I think once you spend enough time with people you consider friends, they really become family. And so here, you know, we're, we're here in Indiana. We're not from here. We're from Texas. We're here in Indiana, and we're celebrating Thanksgiving. And Texas, anyone? I got a little bit of a clap there. We're celebrating Thanksgiving, and, you know, it's as though we were just surrounded by family anyway. You know, we may not be home. We may not be where the rest of our actual family is. But nonetheless, we have this family here. It's good to be part of the family of God. Amen? Amen. You know, I was listening to that last song, and, and uh, it's talking about, behold, he comes, you know, riding on the clouds, you know, shining like the sun, the trumpet's call. It's talking about the coming, the second coming of our Savior is what the song is talking about. It's talking about Jesus coming back one day for his church. He's coming back for you and me one day. Our Savior, the Lord of all creation, he's coming back to scoop us up, if you will, and take us with him. That's what the song's talking about. But I was listening, one of the verses, it's also talking about dry bones and flesh. Like, what's all that about? You know, why are we singing about bones up in here? But what those words represent is, is a vision of Ezekiel. In the Old Testament, there was a, a foreshadowing, if you will. If you're familiar with literary devices, it's foreshadowing. It's, it's a type and shadow of things to come. And so this prophet receives this vision of dry bones in the valley it represents, in my mind, it represents me. It represents us. This is the state that I find myself in prior to a relationship with Christ, prior to being enriched by his spirit. And then as he comes in and he dwells and he makes a, a new covenant here inside of this vessel, inside of, of you, your vessels, you start to come to life. You start to live more abundantly. Your bones, the, the flesh starts to renew itself around your bones. The sinews, if they will, they stretch out and they form. And they form muscles and skin. And, and you become something new, a new creation, a new creature. And we know that this is figurative, but nonetheless, it's, it's very, very real. The restorative nature of a relationship with Christ is very, very real. It's real for me and it's real for you. It's real for us individually. He's good. He's a very real, very present Savior. He's a very living God. Amen? And we worship him here today. Let's stay standing for just a minute longer. I have the text in Romans chapter 6, verse 16. Turn to Romans chapter 6. Verse 16. When you have it, say amen. All right. That's most of you. So Romans chapter 6, verse 16 says, I'm reading from the ESV. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, then you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin 
which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. A question. Paul is asking a question here. Do you not know that whatever you submit yourself to, you are submitting yourselves as slaves, in a sense? And I'm going to explain the term he uses, slaves, here. It's a crude term, and it's metaphorical in a sense. Paul is just looking for a way of explaining this. But the question remains, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? Amen? You can be seated. You are slaves of the one who you obey. So I guess that raises the question, who is it that I choose to obey? But, you know, we'll get into that. First, I want to talk about Thanksgiving. Everybody have a good Thanksgiving? And so the season's upon us where we're having all of these holidays. You know, first the, the PSL, pumpkin spice latte season hits. I think that's a holiday now in the United States, right? October. And then Thanksgiving hits. And inevitably, you're going to see on social media, hashtag thankful, pictures of family, pictures of food. Hashtag thankful for this turkey. Hashtag thankful that I have a house to go to and all of these people are cooking and I get to sit down and eat. That's a really long hashtag. <laughs> hashtag, I don't know, people are thankful for some strange things. Hashtag thankful, I'm thankful for my puppy. And it's probably less meaningful to most of us in here, but I expressed this Wednesday my gratitude for my little dog, Bear, and his just his undying nature, his, un, his undying love. He's... He's perfect. But we're thankful for so much in the season. We're thankful for family. We're thankful for a church. We're thankful for ministry. We're thankful for fellowship. But what I want to express this morning is thankfulness for liberty. And I'm not talking about liberty in the sense of the Declaration of Independence, you know, the 4th of July, we live in America, even though that is very real for us. I'm talking about liberty, choice, and grace. I'm talking about the liberty that I have to choose this day who I will serve. The liberty that I have to present myself to someone in anything that I choose to present myself to, to serve. We have that liberty today. I'm thankful for grace that gives me the ability to make that choice. And so from day one, we see that we were given a choice. God desires for us to choose him. That's what he desires. And he values our choice, in a sense. We've talked about this in youth class, so I'm going to bring it up. God created everything. He created us. And how much more does he value his, his creation, you, than everything else that he created? Because he gave us choice. You know, we have a host of angels. There's an army of angels in the heaven, and they give him praises continually. Day and night, they praise his name. They say, Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. But what he really desires, they're pro, see, they're programmed to give him that praise. But what he desires is the free choice that we have to give him worship, to choose him. And so when we and you individually, any one of us, choose to live for God, he values that. He values that more than all of the heavenly hosts giving him praise. I have to believe that he values the free will choice to follow him. More than all of creation, he values our choice. So God values us, and we find ourselves here free to choose. We're free to choose him. And so, 
Imagine this. We're standing, you know, we're on a road. We're standing at a crossroads. And to the left, on the one hand, we see that there's a choice for self, self-governance, self-sacrifice, self-obedience, um, self-righteousness, self, sin, separation from God. We have this choice. He gives us the choice. And on the other hand, we have Christ. We have liberty. We have life. And as this journey continues, it's as if every day we have this choice. Every day we find ourselves and we come to this crossroad and we make a choice and we go to the left or to the right. And then the next day comes along and we find ourselves yet again at this crossroads. Shall I choose the right? Shall I choose the left? I choose the right. And tomorrow comes along and here I am. I find myself at a crossroads once again of choice. And I think that's what it is to be human. I think that's what it is really to be created in his image. I think there's a lot wrapped up in that. And part of that is the choice we have to choose him or to not choose him. And so this journey continues. It's like we face a perpetual identity crisis. It's like as if every day when we come to this crossroads, we're struggling to understand our own identity. What am I? What am I meant to? to do in this life? Am I called by God? Is he calling me to do something specific for his kingdom? I don't know. I can't hear it. I can't feel it. What am I meant to do? What am I supposed to be when I grow up? I still ask myself that question. (laughs) I mean, I have a job. I know what I do right now, but I don't really want to do that for the rest of my life. (laughs) It's It's a great job, I promise, but I still, I still think about what do I want to be when I grow up? What do I want to be in the kingdom? I know what my next steps are. I know where we're headed. You mentioned it. We're going to be here, you know, a year longer, perhaps. And it kind of hits because we know where we're going next to an extent. We know what we're going to be doing next. But beyond that, and beyond that, to the end and the rest of our lives, I'm not really entirely sure. I just know what's next because God's put it there. And I trust that when I go into that, He's going to place something else next beyond that. And I'm going to step into that, and I'm declaring now, if you will, I'm declaring for myself that I'm going to step into what he has next for me, and I'm going to trust that he places something beyond that, that I don't see right now, but I'll see it when it happens. But we have choice. And here we are at this crossroads. And so, like I said, we're struggling to define for ourselves, who am I? What am I meant to be? What am I? And what I want to do is give us a tool this morning to help us figure that out. And so the phrase, I think, it's going to go something like, to know who you are, you have to know who you are not. To know what you are, you have to know what you are not. And if we can figure out what we aren't, then maybe that can give us a clue as to what we are. If we can figure out who we are not, then that can give us a clue as to who we are. Amen? And so it kind of works like the GPS constellation. I love space. I'll talk about it any chance I get. You know how the GPS works on your phones. It tells you where you're going. Most importantly, it tells you where you are. And it kind of like, you can't really know where to go. It can't give you directions. It knows where Walmart is on the map. But in order to tell you how to get to Walmart, it needs to know where you are. 
Your phone needs to know where it is in order to get where it's going, right? And so for your phone to figure out where it is, it really has to figure out where it isn't. And that's exactly how the GPS constellation works. I'll explain. So I know that right now I am seven steps away from that pulpit, right? That's all I know. I don't know that I'm in this direction. I just know I'm seven steps away. I could be anywhere along this line as long as I'm seven steps away from that pulpit. So I've defined a little bit of who I am and where I am. I know that I'm not that. I know that I'm seven steps away from that. But it still doesn't really help me. I need more. I need to understand more of what I am not to figure out what I am. So this is how our phones work. So here I am now. I'm seven steps from that pulpit, and I'm four steps from this speaker down here. So now that means I am either right here where that seven steps and that four steps meets, or perhaps I'm over here. I'm still seven steps from there and four steps from there, but my choices are extremely limited at this point. I've defined several aspects of who I am not, and it gets me closer and closer to who I am. And so I'm seven steps from that and four steps from that, and I figure out, well, I'm three steps from that, and that places me right here, because over there is not three steps from that, but right here is. And so if I know that I'm not that, and I'm not this, and I'm not this, suddenly I can figure out I'm right here. Because I'm exactly this far away from those other things. And that's how your phone figures this out. That's how GPS works. It connects to three or more, you know, have you ever heard of triangulation? That's, that's what that means. It, there's three positions it needs to know that it's not at, and it needs to know how far it is from that thing. And then it tells you exactly where you're at. So for us, we need to start defining for ourselves who we are not and what we are not, and that will lead us to who we are and what we are. And so we have to declare over ourselves, I'm not a hopeless sinner. I have the grace of God. I have something else that's going to lead me to make the right choice at this crossroads. We have to declare for ourselves, I'm not a liar. I am not a legalist. I am not an adulterer. I am not a murderer. Some of those things might be pretty easy to declare. We're generally averse to murdering people, I think, I hope. But some of those things aren't so easy. It's real easy to tell a white lie. It's real easy to steal. You know, we kind of define for ourselves what is stealing, what isn't, and justify it. It's probably not quite what you define it. But stealing's not the point. Lying's not the point. The point is we define for ourselves what we aren't. We, I am not an unfaithful servant of Christ. I have to declare that over myself. I am not an unfaithful husband. I know that about myself. So it helps me figure out who I am. I'm talking about, really I'm talking about holiness here. If we continue to choose what we are not, that's the key. We have a choice in this. I get to choose that I am not an adulterer. I get to choose that I am not a liar. I get to choose that I am not unfaithful. I get to choose those things. And that's part of the beauty of what God gives us. He gives us the ability to choose not to be those things. And as we define for ourselves, I am not this. I am not that. You know, 
It could be that the world, even the church, your friends, your family, it could be that people place labels upon you. They look at you and they say, ah, you're not really going to go anywhere. Ah, you're not really going to do anything for the kingdom. I don't really know how that person's going to be used. They're just kind of useless. They're, that's a label, useless, lazy, you know, untalented. And they want to apply, the world wants to, you want to apply these own labels to yourself even. There are times when we apply these labels to ourselves, but it's quite the opposite. We need to we need to rebuke those labels. We need to tell ourselves, I am not this thing that the world tries to get me to believe that I am. I am not this thing that my current social setting has placed upon me. I am not this label. I'm not those things. And as I figure out and I decide, it's a decision. I decide I am not those things. I get closer and closer to what I am. Again, I'm talking about holiness here. Every day we have the opportunity to choose the character of Christ. And this implies that we have power and authority to make that choice. There's, there's, that's a big deal. In order to make that choice, we have to have the authority to make that choice. And so I have some good news and I have some bad news. I'll give it to you kind of at the same time, I think, <laughs> according to how my notes are going here. I've got good news and bad news. I guess I'll give you the good news. It'll be all mixed together. Without this implied power, without this implied authority, we have no choice. We had, I'll say past tense, because this is a state that we all found ourselves in at some point. Without this implied power, we had no choice. You're going to meet people who have no choice. There was a point where we were slaves to sin, Paul uses this crude analogy of slavery to illustrate the helpless nature of what it is to be unsaved. A slave to sin in my unsaved state. I was a slave to sin. What that means is I served sin unwillingly. I didn't choose it. I served it. I was a slave to it. I didn't have the choice. You didn't have the choice at some point in your life. We were born into the house of sin, and we were subjected to its dominion. You know, when we're born, when we enter this earth, we're, we're innocent little babies, but really we're born into a life of sin. It's, we stand to inherit death. We stand to inherit judgment. And it comes from the garden. The very first day when, when mankind sinned, that sin that we entered into sin. Really, God, when he created us, he, he gave us a covenant, and we broke it. He said, you're going to commune with me. You're going to walk with me. You're going to talk with me. I created you for my pleasure. I created you to be in fellowship with you. I created you to be in a relationship with you. That's what God tells us. That's what he did. He created us to be in a relationship. And what we did was we immediately broke that relationship. We said, ah, I'm going to do my own thing. And when we broke that relationship, we broke the covering think about it this way we broke the covering because prior to breaking that relationship we had a choice clearly and we chose to break it so back in the garden when we were with God prior to the fall of mankind we had this choice that God created us with but we broke it and when we broke it we chose to walk away from him that's the essence of sin 
It's, I'm not talking about specifics here. I'm not talking about, oh, I saw you kick the dog yesterday. That's a sin or anything like that. No, it's a sinful nature, a sinful state. We chose mankind to walk away from God and to define for ourselves what righteousness was. We tried to cover ourselves with fig leaves. We know the story. God rejected it. And so when we broke that covenant, we chose at that point, because we had the choice, we chose something other than God. We chose a life of sin. And so now we, you and me, are born into the house of sin. We inherit that choice from our fathers, from our mothers, Adam and Eve, all the way back to the garden. That's our starting state. That's what you're handed when you're born into this world. It's a little, I'm not going to say the word, it's a little junky. But that's what we got. That's the cards that were dealt at birth. And so, we unwillingly are born into the house of sin. We are unwillingly a slave to the dominion of sin before we meet Christ. Laws and rules, we see the Old Testament is full of the law. God gives the law, right? Even today, we have rules and we have things that we define. This is what it means to be a Christian. You don't say this. You don't drink that. You don't smoke that, you know? But all of these laws and all of these rules, they're not there to save us. The law in the Old Testament wasn't there to save and provide salvation. The law in the Old Testament was there to identify sin. The law was there to identify that we cannot fulfill the law on our own. We can't fulfill all of this righteousness, all of these things that God calls us to be. So we respond to the need for a Savior. That's our only option. That's our only choice. We can't fulfill all of these things. He said, you know how much law is in the Old Testament? They could never fulfill the law. They had, they had to respond to a Savior. They had to provide sacrifices. And that continues to the New Testament today. We've talked about this before. The need for sacrifice, it never just disappeared, but Jesus, he fulfilled that need for us, right? So, we're born into sin. We're born into a house of sin. And our starting dismal state is that we unwillingly bow to it. We unwillingly, we're slaves to it. We have no choice. There's no choice. When we meet somebody steeped in sin, they have no choice. We don't condemn because they have no choice. They have to be freed from that. We had to be freed from that. And so the law does nothing more than identify sin. God, when he gave us the fellowship and he gave us the law, we perverted it. We turned it into something it was never meant to be. We chose to create a system of... We chose to create a system of self-righteousness. We see the Israelites of old. We see Israel time and time again slipping away from God. Time and time again choosing something other than God. It's because their system of self-righteousness was never going to get them there. We chose to take that law and use it as an instrument to say, I am righteous. I am clean. Look at my clean hands. And it doesn't work that way. I have an excerpt here. When the law came, the flesh, that's us, we made the law an instrument of self-righteousness. The law became part of a religious system which fostered man's sense of self-sufficiency. We, we decided we're still going to define this thing for ourselves. We're helpless in that. That's our nature. 
It became party to man's monstrous delusion where we were delusional in thinking that, well, God gave us this law, so now this is my means of attaining righteousness through my good works. This is my means of attaining righteousness. If I don't do this and I don't do this and I wash my hands, I can raise my hands and tell everyone, look at me, I'm saved, I'm righteous, I'm clean. This is what we've done as humans, as mankind, this is what we've done. And so... The Jews' religious system in the Old Testament, Paul recognized it as the enemy of Christ. It stopped people from true salvation. The law had been turned inside out. Rather than a witness to man's need for being saved, it became a technique to save yourself. And the inner meaning of the law had been forgotten. And the law, when it's mixed with our flesh and our thoughts and our definitions, it produces Sin. And sin ends in death. The Bible says, none are righteous, no, not one. God alone brings righteousness. Even today, we're made to believe that the works that we do produce righteousness. We say, well, if we wear this and we do that, it's going to produce righteousness in me. But we know it's quite the opposite. We don't do these works and these actions. They don't make us holy, but rather holiness brings a desire and a willingness to submit ourselves to God. And so, even though the snare is set... And we walk into it willingly, continually, looking for righteousness, looking to make ourselves and produce righteousness within us. We conform to the patterns of holiness in hopes that we can avoid sin, but it doesn't work that way. We broadcast our clean hands and attempt to convince others of our righteousness, but it doesn't work that way. Suddenly, it becomes a system of self-sufficiency, and we decide we don't need God any longer because we have created holiness within ourselves. We might not outwardly say that, but that creeps into us. It creeps into our spirit. We say, I've done all of these things. I've followed all of these rules. I've sung all these songs. I'm okay. I start not to rely on my Savior anymore. I'm not okay. Every day, we come to a crossroads. Every day. And we have the option, we have the choice to choose Him. I say that, but here I am describing a state where we have no choice. So let's talk about that. All of your sacrifice, all of your righteousness, for what? Have we measured ourselves against Galatians chapter 5? The Spirit, the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, the Scripture says. Against such things there is no law. What's it saying? It's saying we don't do those, we don't perform these acts in hopes to attain holiness. No, when we decide to submit to Christ, it produces spiritual fruit within us. And then we can measure ourselves. If we have an outward appearance of Christianity and our language is clean and our look is clean and we're just right, but on the inside we're lacking joy and peace. Can we identify with that? Do we have turmoil in our head? Do we have conflict with our brother and our sister here in this house? If in our inside we lack those things, joy peace, love for one another, kindness. It's simple. It's really simple, but yet we can fall so far from producing these fruits whenever we look at what we can do to make ourselves righteous. We miss the whole point of it all. We miss holiness. And so choose you this day who you will serve. Will you bow to the expectations that this world places on you? Will you bow to participation and conformity? 
will you call sin your master? Because it's a choice. Will you set yourself up as sovereign, self-righteous, self-saved, and reject the offering of God? Will you say, I don't need the Holy Ghost. I don't need to be baptized in Jesus' name. I don't need all of those things that they tell me I need in the scriptures. I'm a pretty good person. I don't really sin. I'm, I'm okay. We tell ourselves this. But God's not looking for a pretty good person. God's looking for submission to him. The scripture tells us that, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one who you obey? We have to choose. We all serve something. We all serve somebody. You may serve yourself. You might not serve somebody else, but you're still serving something. You're serving your flesh. You're serving your base desires. You're serving something that God isn't pleased with if it's not him and him alone. So that's where we find ourselves. Everybody serves something. Everybody bows. So the question is, will you bow to the one true living God? Will you bow to the master, the creator, the savior? Will you bow to the one who created the heavens and the earth, the one who created the heavenly host, the angels, all of creation, you and me, all-powerful, omnipotent, Will you bow to him or will you set yourself up as sovereign and reject him? I don't want to be sovereign. I don't want to place myself on the level where God is. I don't want to rival myself with the creator of all of the universe. I don't want to say, Lord, you know, I'm just like you. I can save myself. I've got all that power. I'm now your rival. (laughs) That's not going to end well for me. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Amen? As for me and my house, I will serve the King of all creation, the Lord of lords. And I will serve him gladly. I'll choose to serve him because I, today, am at a crossroads. I have the option. I have the choice to serve him. There are three kinds of people in here. In this room today, there's three kinds of people. You're going to fall into one of these three categories. There's all shapes and kinds in here, but we're going to fall into one of these three categories. One, you've been baptized in Jesus' name, and you live a life of Christian liberty. You continually choose the character of Christ, and there's freedom in your worship. You are a servant of God. You have chosen to obey him. Paul uses... Again, the crude language of a slave, and he's talking figuratively here. But you choose to serve the Lord, and it's your choice, and you do it freely. You don't need an invitation to the altar. You come freely and boldly before the throne. You choose to serve him, and you're filled with his power. Two, you've been baptized in Jesus' name, but there's a different kind. Your mind is troubled, and your identity is uncertain. Living for God isn't easy, and you struggle to truly understand holiness. You rely on self-righteousness, but the more you scrub your hands, the dirtier they get. It just seems to spread. You're a slave to self-righteousness. You have all the power to choose a new master, though, and yet you choose self. You choose to try to figure it out on your own. You're filled with his spirit, 
You're baptized in his name, and yet we choose self-righteousness. Today, you have the opportunity to submit to your Savior. You are at a crossroads. You can choose. Three, you have not been baptized in Jesus' name. Unwillingly, you're a slave to this world, and you're a slave to sin. It might not feel like it, but that's exactly what the world wants you to feel. You might have a desire for righteousness, but you're truly powerless to choose. You might not, well, you haven't been given yet grace. You haven't been given choice because you're not yet covered. You're not yet covered with his name. You're a child of this world, and like I described earlier, you stand to inherit the judgment of this world. And you might feel like a decent person. Like I said, God's not looking for decent people. I'm thankful for that. God is not a respecter of persons, unfortunately. But God is looking for people that are willing to submit to him. So you find yourself now on a road with no alternative. There is no crossroads for you. There is no choice today. Get this. There's no choice today. You might search for an alternative, but it isn't there. You've been placated by this world. You've been lied to. You've been made to believe that there are many ways to heaven and that there is no hell. Some of us are here. Your current master feeds you with these lies only to keep you under its control. And perhaps, though, perhaps you've awakened to the need for a savior. Perhaps you have a desire inherently within yourself. We all have an inherent desire to respond to a savior. Perhaps you've felt it. Perhaps you're not baptized in his name, but you feel the desire to respond. But what do you do? You're faced with moments of desperation, and it seems like there's no way out when you're in those moments, and you're searching, and you're looking even today for a way off of this track that you're on, but there is none. I'm telling you, there's none. Around you, there's a sea of people marching forward to death, and you're swept up in the tide, and you're pushed along by the droves of people, but you're powerless to change your fate, and you're powerless to stop the inevitable. Every person in this room has been here. Every person, bar none, every person on this platform started on this road with no alternative. But today I'm thankful for a Savior who reached down and he plucked me out. Here I'm to tell you that there is hope after all. No, you can't do it on your own. You can't change your own fate. But there is a God and he is willing that none should perish. God is willing to reach down and pluck you out of the multitude. He's willing to reach down and pluck me out of that multitude and place me on a different path. After all, he knew you before you were born. Not a bird falls from the sky that he doesn't see. How much more does he see you? He sees every head, every hair on your head. He knows you. What does that tell you? What does that tell me? He has a desire for me. His will, I just said it, is simple. God is willing that none should perish. He's willing today that none should perish. And yet we find ourselves on this road with no way out. So how do we reconcile a God who's willing that none should perish with the fact that I'm born into sin and I'm on this road with no alternative? How do those two thoughts coexist with one another? How are those both true? How is it not one or the other? How is it not that either we serve a God who's full of grace and full of love, and we're saved, or otherwise. The world will say, well, if he's really God, 
and he's really loving and faithful, he'll accept you as you are. But you've been lied to. And so, there is no crossroads here. But we know God is willing that none should perish. Only we must acknowledge that we cannot save ourselves. We must come to rely on him. You know what God's will is for you? Again, 2 Peter 3 and 9. God is willing that none should perish. It's simple. But Scripture gives us a two-part statement here. There's another piece of that. The first part expresses his desire for us. We are his creation after all. This first part is an expression of his love. His deepest desire is that none of us, none of you would perish. His deepest desire, that's his will, stated in his scripture, in his word. You want to figure out his will for your life, it's simple. You shall not perish, he says. But there's another part of this expression. He wants you to survive, but the funny thing about choice is he can't choose for us. The funny thing about choice is we oftentimes choose what isn't quite healthy for us. Even in Thanksgiving, we oftentimes choose to overeat. And it's not healthy for us. But that's the thing about choice. We get to make it for ourselves. And it's no different here. He can't choose for us. When he breathed the breath of life into mankind, when he created humans, he created us in his image and he gave us choice. And we know that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So we know that this gift of choice will not be rescinded. We know that he will not infringe upon our ability to choose. And so while we are presently powerless to find an escape, while we're walking down this path of sin and there is no crossroads, if you haven't been baptized by the name of Jesus, it's hopeless. There is no crossroads. There's no way out. There's no way I can climb up on the wall and choose a different path for myself. And so while I find myself on that path, I can't deny sin. You can't deny every temptation. You will inevitably fall from righteousness. But Nonetheless, there's a choice, and he will not make it for us. There's one option. There is no plan B. God's will is clear, none should perish, but his will is qualified by the second part of that verse. He says, God is willing that none should perish, but all would come to repentance. As recorded in the book of Acts, Peter compels us to repent and be baptized in the name of what? In the name of Jesus. For what? For the remission of sins, you must be baptized in Jesus' name. Romans chapter 6 says, We who have died in sin, how could we live in sin a moment longer? Have you forgotten that all of us who were baptized into Jesus Christ were, by that very action, sharing in his death? We were dead and buried with him in baptism. This is what happens when you go under the water. This is what happens. It explains it. So that just as he was raised from the dead, you shall also be raised from the dead. You shall, you might be raised to new life, and this translation says, and put on a new plane altogether. And so though you find yourself on this path, and I'm telling you there's no way off of it unless you consult with Christ. There's no way off of it. There's no way I can take myself out of this predefined thing I've been born into, this world of sin. I can't do it myself. I'm on this path and there is no crossroads. And though that's the truth, God will take you 
to a new plane altogether. For those who have been baptized, you've been plucked out of the multitude. You want a way out? Be baptized in Jesus' name. When you're baptized under his name, you're covered by his sacrifice. You're covered by his death on the cross. The cross isn't an empty symbol of religion. It's not just something that we wear around our necks. All power rests upon the moment that Jesus breathed his last breath upon the cross. If we have, as it were, shared in his death, then let us rise and live our new lives with him. Let us never forget that our old selves died with him on the cross, that the tyranny of sin over us might be broken. I'm in Romans chapter 6. This is what the scripture says. For a dead man can safely be said to be immune to the power of sin. A dead man cannot be tempted. A dead man cannot be enslaved and ensnared. After baptism, you are plucked out of the multitude and placed on a new path. This path has opportunity. This path you will find crossroads daily. You will have power to turn away from sin, to be immune from it. You will have power to choose righteousness daily after you've been baptized. If you were dead men with him, can you believe that you shall also be men newly alive with him? I am back in Romans 6. This is the scripture. We can see for sure that risen Christ never dies again. Death's power to touch him is finished. He died, but he died because of sin once, but he lives forever. Now get this, in the same way we look upon ourselves as dead to the appeal and the power of sin, but alive and sensitive to the call of Christ, to the call of God through Christ our Savior. And if you're interested, I'm reading John Phillips' translation here. You're alive in Christ. If you identify with his death, then you must identify with his resurrection. If you identify with his death, he was risen up. And if we die with him in baptism, that's what's happening. When I was put under the water, when I was buried in that watery grave, if you will, in that moment, I identified myself with Christ. When you were buried in baptism, in that moment, you identified with his death. And if you have identified with his death, it's only logical that you identify with his new life, with his resurrection. And as you identify with his resurrection, you have now new life. You are now on a new path, on a new plane, and you have now the power to choose. Where there previously was no crossroad for you, you now have a choice. It doesn't mean that you're automatically saved. It doesn't mean that you're automatically holy. It doesn't mean that you're automatically righteous. It means now that you have the opportunity to choose righteousness when you've been buried in his name. The second part of Peter's appeal here is a promise. He says, after you repent and are baptized in his name, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And I want to tell you that this isn't an afterthought. This isn't an optional bundle. It's not an additional work of grace that comes upon us at some point. No, we know that when Christ died on Calvary, his work was finished. So here we are. We're in shopping season. It's Black Friday. Happened a few days ago. 
Cyber Monday is knocking on our door, and we see sales, we see bundles, we see upsells. You buy this item, it doesn't come with this other item, but hey, you can add it to it if, if you choose. You have the choice in all things. But in this thing, there is no choice. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, it's not an additional work of grace. It's not an expansion. It's compulsory. It's part of the core set, if you will. When you buy the set, when you accept the watery baptism, you also have now inherited the Holy Ghost. You also now have access to the Holy Ghost. As Peter said, when you repent and you're baptized in Jesus' name, you shall, shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So what does this tell us? It tells us when Christ died, like I said, his work was finished. The Holy Ghost, just like remission of sins under his name, together, they're paid in full. They're paid in full. Christ paid in full. Some say that he steals us out of the gates of hell, but that's not true. No, really, he purchased us. He purchased us in full. He purchased our salvation by his sacrifice. He purchased our salvation. He purchased our ability to be filled with his spirit by his sacrifice. And so the Holy Ghost is paid in full. There is no extra work that we have to do to receive it. There's no penitence that we have to impose upon ourselves to have access to the Holy Ghost. There's no thing that we can do with our hands to earn the power of his spirit. No, we're just buried in his name and we have access to it. You have to be baptized in Jesus' name. You have to receive the power of the Holy Ghost. You have to receive it. Here's why. Before Peter made his statement in Acts chapter 2, Jesus said in Acts chapter 1. This was just before he ascended into heaven. This is his last words. If I'm about to leave... Now, I'm not going to see you again here in this setting, ever. I'm going to give you some parting words, probably. And whatever I say to you in those very last final moments that we're together is probably going to be very important to me. I'm probably going to tell you something that I want you to remember me by. I might tell you, I might give you a set of instructions. This is how I want you to conduct yourself as I'm gone. A leader leaving his followers, will most likely give them a set of instructions. While I'm out, this is what I want you to do. This is how I want you to conduct business. A parent, a guardian, a loved one, as they leave, might give you an impartation. They might give you their desires for you for their life. They might give you a blessing. They might say, this is very important to me. You, I want you to have this. As my parting words, this is very important. And so Christ says, Acts chapter 1, right before he ascends into heaven. The very last thing he mentioned is, Acts 1 chapter 8, you will receive power when the Holy Ghost has come upon you. This is why you have to be filled with the Holy Ghost. The question is, what power do you receive? Among other things, you receive the power to choose Righteousness. When the Holy Ghost comes upon you, you now have the ability to walk away from sin. You now have the ability to recognize 
ungodly things in your life and step away from it and turn away from it. You now have that power where we were previously slaves to sin before an experience with Christ, where we previously had no choice in the matter. We were born into the house of sin. We were born into the house of iniquity. We now have been reborn. We've been adopted. We've been plucked up. We're one of his now. He places his name upon us. And so we receive the power to walk away from sin and from death. And we receive the opportunity to come to a crossroad and to choose life. And I'm getting ready to close we receive the opportunity to come to a crossroad. We receive choice. And so think about it. Genesis, we're in the garden. We're walking with God. That's how God intended us. He created us as he intended. And in that moment, in his intention for us in the garden, we commune with him. We walk with him. We talk with him. The Bible describes him walking through the cool of the day looking for Adam and Eve. And he calls to him, Adam, where are you? God's intention was to be with us. His intention was for us to be able to choose, though, because we see that he places this tree in the garden and he gives us the opportunity to not eat from it. Because the greatest gift that he gave us on creation was the ability to choose him. Unfortunately, we chose something else. Unfortunately, we chose ourselves. We chose to try to figure this out on our own and to not rely on him. And we see the state that mankind now finds itself in as we're born into the house of iniquity. And so, when we are reconciled back to Christ when we identify with him in baptism in his name, we're restored. We are restored back to a place where he intended for us to be to begin with. This isn't something new. He's taken us back to his desires. He's taken us back to creation. When you go down in watery baptism, you are taking yourself back to creation. And at creation, we had the choice to choose that tree or choose God. After that, we had no choice. We live in sin. We couldn't do anything about it. And then Christ comes along and he offers himself as a sacrifice. And he says, I now have a new covenant for you. You broke my original covenant, but since that day, I've been working to restore you back to me. I've been working to restore you back to that place where I intend for you to be. I want you to be in my glory. I want you to be in my presence. And this is how you can do it. Take on my name, he says. Take on my name. Become one of mine. And that moment you take on that name, you now have the choice again to choose me. You have the choice again, just like I created you to choose me. You can do it. You can take on that name, he says. And if you've already taken on that name, you have the choice. You can think about the things that oftentimes condemn us in our minds. You think about what you did yesterday, what you did last week, last month. You think about all those times that you didn't pray, you didn't read your Bible. 
Maybe it's just the sin of omission. Maybe it's nothing else. Maybe it's not overt. But nonetheless, we find ourselves in this place where we have a tendency to condemn ourselves. We say, I've done these things. How can I be worthy? How can I even be worthy to approach his throne? But when we do that, we're placing our own condemnation and power over his grace. We place our own condemnation and our own judgment and power above his ability to forgive us for it. When instead, he really just wants us to come to that crossroad and choose him. Especially if you've been filled with the Holy Ghost. He's calling you today. So there's three types of people. You have freedom. You have liberty. Type one. I don't have to ask you to come to the altar. You've been baptized in his name. And you respond to it daily. You have a relationship with your creator. And then there's the second type. You've been baptized. You may have been filled with the Holy Ghost. But it's still a struggle. I think most of us find ourselves in this position several times. Continually even. All fall short. But... You can choose. You can choose righteousness. The scripture shows us we can choose righteousness. We have the power to reject temptation. We have the power to reject sin. Type two. And so, when you come to this altar, this is a crossroads for you. Type two. This is a place where you now have the opportunity to submit to a savior instead of submitting to sin because once we're filled with the spirit and we have that choice we're freely submitting to one or the other so that option is to freely submit to him and type three if you haven't been baptized in his name i encourage you find somebody express your desire to be covered by his name express your desire to be given the choice to choose something different it's available i think there's water in the baptism i'm not sure how warm it is but the heater's on in here amen if you haven't been baptized in the name of jesus express to somebody your desire to be given the choice your desire to identify with christ and to receive the power that he wants to bestow upon you, to choose for yourself how your life is going to go, to choose for yourself that you can walk away from the temptation that you face daily, to choose for yourself whether or not you're going to fall into sin. You're not going to be subject to it anymore. You're going to be free. You're going to walk with liberty. After you've been baptized in his name, you're going to have liberty that you likely can't even understand in this moment as I say these things if you can't even understand the ability to walk away from whatever it is that besets you it's because you haven't received the liberty of his spirit you haven't received the liberty of his name covering you and if you want that it's available and you don't have to work for it there's no penitence there's no Hail Marys there's no repetitious prayers or anything you have to do to earn it in fact there's no way you could earn it All you have to do is accept it because it's already been purchased by Christ. And so I urge everyone now to come forward and in your way and in your place, respond. Respond to the offer of your Savior. 
He's given you a crossroads. And he's given you the opportunity to choose. So we choose him now in this place. Amen. Hallelujah.